Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. We are offering three conversations from episode 42, which focused on the role of fibroblast growth factors, or FGFs, play in the body, and how FGF agents might fare as Nash pharmacotherapy once approved. The conversations do not follow the order of the episode itself. This conversation focuses on FGF as medicine. Stephen Harrison discusses the results from Fruxifermin clinical trials to date. Arun Sanyal discusses why one FGF agent might be more promising than another. And both agree with the implication of Roger Green's question about whether these are an extremely promising class of agents. Arun and Stephen are brilliant at explaining complex concepts simply. Listen twice or three times if you must, but you will walk away with knowledge you did not start with. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the discussion on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. Roger Green. Last spring, in, in relatively short space of time, we talked about the withdrawal of one FGF-targeted agent, the FGF-19, Aldefermin, from not going ahead in the Phase three trial for advanced NASH. The success of the FGF-21 Afroxifermin in its Phase two a balance trial, which Stephen was the author on when it published, I guess, in Nature last month. And then some exciting very early data about Afroxifermin and compensated cirrhosis. And I was getting phone First of all, congrats to Stephen, who served as the PI on both trials. But second, I was getting letters, phone calls, and queries about, can someone explain to me what this FGF thing is about? So today, we're going to do that. Fortunate enough to have a run with us, as well as Stephen. I can't think of two better people to teach. First of all, just a high-level summary of what we're learning about Afroxifermin, and then some review of the differences between 19 and 21, and then differences between how the construction of the different FGF21 agents might lead to different results, and if we have time, to go back and take a look at what the 2B design for MK3655, the FGF compound that Merck licensed from NGM, can tell us about that compound and ways to think about the future of that entire mode of action. So that's a lot. We're going to try to get it all done in about 40 minutes. Stephen, why don't you kick us off by talking a little bit about the two trials, maybe the 2A balance first and then the cohort C second. Stephen Harrison. Sure. So thank you for the kind words relative to the balanced trial. So this is a, you know, it's interesting, Afruxafermin, which is the, the commercial name for Akero's FGF21 agonist was studied in an early proof of concept study with about 80 patients and MRIs were done at the beginning. They were done at week 12. And if patients achieved a 30% relative reduction in liver fat, they were offered a liver biopsy. And the liver biopsy was really done to, to see what the correlation between a reduction in liver fat and histology was, because there's a lot of background work done by Rohit Lumba and others looking at this magnitude of effect change in liver fat is quantified by MRI PDFF, linking a 30% relative reduction in fat to a benefit histopathologically. And so it's an early study. It's a proof of concept trial. Like I mentioned, 80 patients were enrolled and it turned out the primary endpoint was change in liver fat content and treatment with afruxifermin for 12 weeks was associated with a reduction of absolute hepatic fat content from 12 to 14% for all all doses. Maybe intriguing to me was the fact that every single patient treated with afruxifermin had at least a 30% relative drop in liver fat with about 90% having a greater than 50% reduction in liver fat and about 67% or two-thirds completely normalizing their liver fat. And of course, those patients who achieved that 30% relative reduction in liver fat went on to have liver biopsies. And we see there some meaningful 
meaningful changes, impactful changes on histopathology, both in terms of improvement in components of the NAFLD activity score, but maybe more importantly, the impact that it had on fibrosis. Again, it's an early phase trial that needs to be replicated and validate a larger trial, and that is currently underway now, and that's enrolling patients in a much larger phase 2B paired liver biopsy study. Cohort C, just moving straight to that, was an added cohort looking at well-compensated cirrhotic patients. Again, treated for this short period of time with an opportunity to have a repeat liver biopsy. Now, not all patients uh, were required to undergo a repeat liver biopsy. It was voluntary, but most of them chose to do that. And we presented that data at EASL recently. And again, very nice findings relative to liver fat content reduction. But maybe the most striking finding was the fact that about a third of patients actually had regression of fibrosis from a well-compensated cirrhotic state to something less than cirrhosis. And and given the issue with sampling variability and inter and intra-observer variability in reading, we wanted to look at some additional non-invasive tests to support and substantiate the histopathologic changes. And there were very positive movements in multiple different NITs to support something positive happening in these cirrhotic patients. Again, uh, nothing more than to say a very early proof-of-concept trial, but a very positive one for this group of patients who are at incredible unmet medical need for, for their liver disease. To be able to take a NASH cirrhotic and stabilize that disease or maybe even potentially begin to reverse it is something that we sorely need and uh, we're excited to see where this may be heading. As a result of that trial, there is now also a phase 2B trial in well-compensated cirrhotics that is being put together and hopefully launched in in the near future with a caro using a fruxafermin. That's the results. The intriguing part of this is the significant reduction in liver fat that occurs very quickly. And, you know, I got my interest in FGF21 actually from working with Arun, who spearheaded Bristol Myers Squibb's FGF21 development program early on. And uh, he was first author on that initial publication, I believe in, in Lancet, if I'm not mistaken. But it is interesting that potentially not all FGF21s are created equal, but certainly we'll be talking today about huge differences between FGF19 and FGF21, despite the fact that these hormones only have two numbers that separate them. So I think I'll end there. That makes FGF21 sound like an exceptionally efficient way to address NASH in that it addresses many different issues in many different places. Would that be accurate compared to, say, some of the other modes of action that we take a look at? Arun Sanyal. I can take a shot at that. It is definitely a potentially very exciting way to manage this problem because it gets to the root cause. It reduces fat in the liver. And now we're beginning to see that you can might be able to actually improve fibrosis as well. In addition to that, by improving the lipid profile, we expect this will translate into improved cardiovascular outcomes, although we need data, hard data to show that. So all of those are on the plus side. On the negative side is the fact that it's an injectable 
And, you know, there is at least a theoretical worry that over time, as you keep injecting, you may get tachyphylaxis, you could get antibodies developing to the molecule. Now, you could argue that this is all theoretical. Nobody's actually shown this as a real phenomenon. And I'll say that I'll absolutely accept that. But it's something that as a academic clinician with a research interest in the area, we're always looking to see where the minefields are, right? So that we can avoid them. And so other than that, I think this is looking very, very good. This preliminary data is incredibly exciting. But if we step back for a moment and look at it, we only have liver biopsy data with FGF21s right now on about 50 patients that have been reported, right? So there's still a significant amount of data that we need to generate over a longer period of time to really have a clear understanding of what this mechanism is doing to the liver and then extrahepatically what it's doing outside of the liver. And one of the things that I'm big on as we develop drugs for NASH is that we're not so myopic that all we focus on as hepatologists is parenchyma of the liver. You know, I think we need to be cognizant of the fact that this is a symptom of a much bigger metabolic problem that the patients are going through. And so if we can have a drug that targets some of these extra hepatic manifestations of metabolic syndrome, that's going to have a much better impact at the end of the day. So we want to hit the liver. We want to see what we can do outside of the liver. And at least what we've seen with some of these FGF21s, we're doing that. And afruxifermin is, is a good example. But I think with anything else, the juice is worth the squeeze, the view is worth the climb. And while if this early data holds up, we have a drug that appears to be effective histopathologically as well as positive impacts on atherogenic lipids, glycemic control, potentially even blood pressure and weight loss. It does come at a premium, and that is an adverse event profile that has some GI tolerability with it that will have to be mitigated. And then, as Arun mentioned, it's an injective. So this is typically given in a group of patients that don't usually have a lot of symptoms. Now, I know there's work being done to illustrate that patient's quality of life is not what it would be if they didn't have NASH. But as a general rule, people don't walk in to my clinic saying, I think I have NASH because I have X, Y, and Z symptoms. They generally, for the most part, don't really feel that much different than their family members or anybody else. So if we're going to give them a treatment for a long period of time, we need to make it something ultimately that can be well tolerated. And so if we're going to use these injectables, we begin to have to think about, are we going to use them as induction therapy and then switch them over to something that's better tolerated long haul? Or is this more targeted to an advanced population? I think these are some of the unanswered questions with this particular mechanism of action. Uh, Arun, is there a strong existing hypothesis about which is better and which is um, less good, let's say? FGF receptor 1 binding is clearly an important part. And FGF receptor 4 provides liver specificity. So those two, I think we have good data on. The impact of twos and threes, I think, are a little more open-ended. But it may be that some combo could have a little bit better effect than others. One of the mechanisms of action that have emerged from preclinical studies is that the brain sends out these signals through nerves called the sympathetic nervous system that cause the adipose tissue to burn fat without turning it into ATP. So that excess energy is released and you essentially can start getting rid, mobilizing your adipose tissue and getting rid of the extra fat. Whether that actually happens in humans and to what what degree it explains the overall biology of adiponectin, I think remains a fairly contested uh, subject. 
clearly there are direct effects of adiponectin, direct effects of FGF21 on the adipose tissue that are linked to its stimulation of adiponectin that also seem to be a quite important. And as Steve mentioned, the recent data from humans, again, suggests that these direct effects on adipose tissue may actually be quite important. So between picking the brain or the adipose tissue, my personal bias is that the adipose tissue effects are probably more relevant. I I do have one more question. And Arun, you and I talked about this briefly before the podcast, which is that we talk about FGF21 as being short half-life, fast-acting, acute drug. And then you come up on the uh, design for uh, the MK3655 trial, right? The molecule that allows us to which is a sub-Q dose. It's a 28-day dosing, and it looks to be targeted at a very different use. And I'd, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how the molecule is different and what that logic is and what, whether it is what it appears to me to be. Well, least. it's primarily working through FGF receptor 1 and beta clotho, and so it has a significant extrahepatic profile of action. And uh, there's very strong preclinical data that by having a pure FGF receptor 1C and a beta clotho effect, it is modifying adiponectin. Uh, and in preclinical models, including primates, it has shown quite a remarkable defatting and improvement and suppression of, uh, you know, lipolysis. Interestingly, in the fasted state, it has also suppressed endogenous glucose production, which is largely a hepatic, you know, function. So its effects are not only in the adipose tissue, but there is an effect at the level of the liver as well, because the endogenous glucose production is by and large a function of hepatic gluconeogenesis. So there are other compounds also. What is common between all many of these FGF9 is that they all sort of tend to increase adiponectin. The ones that have been shown to, you know, there, there are compounds that were developed by Lilly. There were other compounds that have been developed by Pfizer, uh, etc. There, there appears to be an effect, at least in the human studies, on the adiponectin which is a big part of this story. For the MK3655, what is also remarkable is that if you look at the glucose disposal rate, which is the removal of glucose from circulation, it it almost has the same level that you see with the classical insulin sensitizer like pioglitazone. So this basically is showing that it's improving insulin resistance and a lot of that insulin resistance is muscle-mediated like I talked about. It reduces hepatic fat and also it is improving adiponectin. So target organs include adipose tissue, muscle, and the liver for sure. And again, seem because the ability to suppress after a single dose, one of probably what big separator over here is that after a single dose, if you went out to uh, day th- up to day 36, you can see a up to 34-35% reduction in hepatic fat. That, in my view, is pretty remarkable. So be, I would be very interested to see as the histology trial rolls out that what the f- final results, how these translate into improved histology. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions surfingnash.com. We will be back next Wednesday, August 25th, when Jorn Schottenberg joins us to discuss cirrhosis, the disease, and prospects of drug therapy. I hope you'll join us then. Until then, stay safe, surf on, and see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. <laughs>